Hello, and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2016 Southern California Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Abbas Milani, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is ISIS, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the Future, and it was recorded on February 2nd, 2016. Good morning. Uh, as I think you all know, Hoover events are impeccably planned, but I think they made a mistake on this one. They organized a talk on ISIS before lunch. I think you're all going to lose your appetites and uh, need a stiff drink because uh, the news I'm about to deliver is not happy news. Of course, you have not heard too many uh, great news this morning about the economy, so we are piling it on. so the, the only solution is contribute to Hoover so that we can find solutions to some of these problems. Uh, when I talk about ISIS, I'm uh, always inclined to begin with a poem by Yeats. Many of you, I'm sure, have read it. Some of you would remember it, slouching towards Bethlehem, where he talks about how the best uh, are without passionate intensity and the worst are most determined to move towards Bethlehem and wreak havoc. It is a remarkable uh, poem. talks about how anarchy is loosed upon the world. Uh, it talks about how the center cannot hold. And I truly believe we are at the moment that the center cannot hold in the Middle East. And because the center cannot hold in the Middle East, and because of the politics of the Middle East, because of the uh, demographics around the world, uh, because of changes in the number of Muslims living in the West uh, compared to all the moments of the last 1,300 years, uh, we are at a very important historic juncture. I truly believe that. And unfortunately, I don't think there is enough serious thought being given to how you solve the problems that are the result of a hundred years of occasional uh, misrepresentations, uh, missed opportunities, and false policies. Uh, it is very easy to blame one president or the other, blame Bush, blame Clinton, blame Obama. I think everybody bears some responsibility, but the blame is much, much more serious. To give you a sense of how serious this problem is, I was just looking at the new defense budget of the United States. The United States in the next year is going to spend $7.5 billion fighting ISIS compared to $3.4 billion confronting Russia. Russia has hundreds of anti-ballistic missiles. Russia has the capacity to destroy the United States several times over. The United States has the capacity to return the favor. ISIS now has a budget next year, twice the size of the budget, to confront a much more aggressive, Putin-led, thuggish foreign policy of Russia. That gives you a sense of the dimensions of the threat. The head of MI6 says now, officially, in England, 50% of the intelligence budget, 50% of the intelligence budget is dedicated to fighting radical Islam. Why do I say the problem is historic? 
Let me give you three uh, small anecdotes. In mid-1970s, in a very nondescript building in uh, Gaza, there was a foundation funded by Saudi Arabia called Ebna Baz Foundation. I suspect most of you have never heard of Ebna Baz. Ebna Baz was for many years the most important cleric in Saudi Arabia. Ebna Baz Foundation is the origins of the now increasing ISIS threat in Gaza Strip. Move back a few years. In Egypt, they killed the head of the Muslim Brotherhood. They executed the head of the Muslim Brotherhood, someone called Sayyid Qutb. Again, someone who I suspect many of you have never heard. Most of our students, most of my students at Stanford, political science students, IR students, have never heard of the guy who is single-handedly more responsible for Islamic radicalism in 20th century than anyone else. He is the grandfather of all radicalism. He is the grandfather of all Islamic terrorism. When Muslim Brotherhood was created in Egypt, you had the beginning of a new form of radical Islam amongst the Shia Sunnis of the world. Ibn Abbas was the most important uh, theologian of a version of Islam that is called Wahhabism. Again, if you want to understand the current Islamic world, you need to understand who the Wahhabis are, you need to understand who the Sunnis are, and you need to understand who the Shiites are. Wahhabism would have been a minor footnote in the history of Islam if it wasn't because of oil money. Wahhabism is a form of Islam that emerged in the desert of Arabia in 18th century when someone came and said, I am the only true Muslim since the time of Muhammad. Everyone else since Muhammad has gone wrong. I am the true Muslim and we have to go to the ways of Muhammad. We have to go to the ways of the past. The Arabic word for past is Salaf. Salafism, of whom you have, I'm sure, heard, is partly based in this idea. So Wahhabism became the form of a Sunni faith in Arabia. And it was a very small minority of the Sunni world, which is 80% of the Muslims around the world. 1.4 billion people in the world are now Muslims. Of those, some 80% are Sunnis. Of those, a very small percent are Wahhabis. The population of Arabia is about 20 million. But the influence of Wahhabism increased when Saudi Arabia became flush with cash. The Saudi Arabia that we know of is the result of an alliance between two families. Everyone talks about the Saudi royal family getting a lion's share of the wealth, but they get the lion's share, but there is another family that has been part of the ruling class in Saudi Arabia for almost 200 years. They're the family of the Sheikh, the Wahhabis. They're the religious uh, forces that provide legitimacy to the Saudi family. When oil went up, the family of the uh, Abdul Wahab demanded more money for making schools around the world, making mosques around the world, making, sending uh, preachers around the world. So you have what scholars call the Wahhabization 
of the Sunni world. And Wahhabis generally tended to be apolitical. Part of the agreement between the Wahhabis and the royal family was that you keep political power, we keep uh, religious power, we legitimize you, you give us part of the uh, rent, government rent. I refer to Muslim Brotherhood. Muslim Brotherhood was a deeply political Islamic movement. And from 1950s, you had Egyptian thinkers, Egyptian teachers, Egyptian physicians, trained in the Muslim Brotherhood radical version of Islam, travel throughout Saudi Arabia. Read Bin Laden's biography. He said, I became political in high school when my teacher from Egypt was a Muslim Brotherhood expat. So you have the expansion of Wahhabism throughout the world, funded by money, oil, and you have the radicalization of it theologically uh, funded by, uh, fueled by, uh, made sophisticated by the theology of Muslim Brotherhood. They, the two of them share one important point. They say we have to go to the ways of the Prophet. We have to see how Muhammad ruled a city of about 4,000, which is the size that Muhammad ruled at the time he ruled it. We have to take that model and apply it today. That's what Salafism essentially means. But you had another movement that is also very important in understanding today's Middle East. From about the time that you had the rise of Salafis in Saudi Arabia, in Iran, which was at the time the only Shiite-dominated uh, uh, country in the world, you had the rise of a kind of Salafism there as well. Shiites, as I said, are about 20% of the Muslim world. The difference between Shiites and Sunnis is essentially the difference about who should have succeeded the prophet. Uh, the Sunnis said we should have elected the successor. The Shiites said the prophet has chose, had chosen his son-in-law uh, and that God had ordained uh, the son-in-law to be the prophet. The word in Arabic for a partisan is Shiite. So Shiism means the partisans of Ali. Sunnis, Arabic words, tradition, people who say we have a tradition for choosing uh, successors. Shiism becomes a state religion in Iran, and about the time where you have this uh, movement towards uh, Salafism in Arabia, about the time you have this movement towards radicalism in the Sunni world, you have exactly the same movement in Iran. 1941. A young man emerges. I said, I'll give you three anecdotes. One was the rise of Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, the rise of Wahhabism in Saudi Arabia. Now I'm going to give you the rise of a radical form of Islam in Iran. A young man comes, and the name of Safavi, uh, he says, all forms of Shiism so far have been false, and we want a new form of Shiism a new form of Shiism that doesn't accept anything other than what is in the Quran or in the Hadith. Quran is Islam's holy book. Hadith are words and deeds attributed to the Prophet or his progeny. The combination of this is called Sharia. What comes out of all of this is called Sharia. So you have, within a 150 year span, movements in Wahhabism, in Sunnism, and in Shiism that share one fundamental point. 
They say we have to have a government based on Sharia, nothing else. We don't want democracy. We don't want rationalism. We don't want science in the Western sense, because science in the Western sense is entwined with Judeo-Christian tradition. We want something different that is uniquely Islamic. We want to go back to the ways of the Prophet. These three movements began percolating ideas for the last 100, 120 years in the Muslim world, particularly in Middle East. Once oil came in, Iran and Saudi Arabia became oil rich, the tensions and the possibilities that these forms of ideology could have became suddenly something completely different. Fast forward to 1979, Iran has its Islamic revolution. Khomeini comes to power, creating the first Islamic theocracy. And Khomeini begins to promote Shiism throughout the Arab world. Khomeini begins to invite Shiites of uh, Iraq to rise against uh, Saddam Hussein. Khomeini begins to agitate against the Saudi royal family. The first uh, pilgrimage of Hajj, where Iran sent its pilgrims to Hajj, had 400 people killed by the Saudi police because the people from Iran began to uh, shout slogans against the Saudi royal family. So the Saudis and Iranians began creating proxies almost immediately after 1979. Today, all of those proxies have come home to roost. ISIS, Hezbollah, uh, radical Shiites in Iraq that are wreaking havoc throughout the Middle East are examples of these chickens that have come home to roost. And there is no easy solution because uh, ISIS is today, I have to tell you, ISIS today, after a year and a half of thousands of attacks by uh, the alliance against them, air attacks, uh, attacks by the Iraqi forces. ISIS today is more powerful than it was a year and a half ago. ISIS just yesterday was announced to have several thousand people in Afghanistan. ISIS was today announced to have several thousand potential allies in Libya. They control a very important part of Libya. They now control a land that is larger than Denmark, a population that is larger than Denmark. They have websites in multiple languages. They have Twitter accounts in 28 different languages. I strongly urge you to go on the website, internet, and take a look at their theoretical journal. It is called Dabek, D-A-B-I-Q. The English translation is very good. It is the most sophisticated, formally the most sophisticated terrorist magazine I have ever seen in my life. They publish in French, they publish in Turkish, they publish in Russian, they publish in English, and they publish in Arabic. Thirteen issues have been published. And make sure that, that if you go there, 
big brother will know that you've been there because you can't imagine to be going there. I go there all the time and I keep going so that they know that I'm doing it for research, for not uh, any other purpose. Hopefully they're listening and uh, uh, they will forgive my uh, visits. Uh, and once you go there, uh, you realize how, uh, what, what the threat is. And you realize that nothing about what they do is random. It is far more calculated than you have given them credit for. And thus, it's far more dangerous. The good news is that over 98, some would say 99% of the Muslim world think that ISIS is an aberration. The bad news is if they have less than half of a 1% of 1.4 billion, they can wreak havoc. And that's exactly what they plan to do. And they have a very well laid out plan. You can read all of this in English. You can see everything that they have done is part of what they said they would do. In the last issue, it's called Just Terror. The idea that terror can be just is essentially the theme of that magazine, the number 13 of the magazine. Uh, and it begins by saying, Paris is just the beginning. And they describe how the Paris terrorists were trained in Syria. They put on this slick video. They advertise over 20 videos, some of the slickest and most brutal most violent videos I have ever seen. I generally try not to watch them because, you know, I don't have voyeuristic tendencies. But they know that the world does. They know that if they put a beheading, millions will go to watch it. And they are absolutely, again, if you read their writing, they are very clear that this is part of what they want to do. And the fact that they have so much support People say, where do they get their money from? It is today the most well-funded terrorist organization anybody has ever seen. They control more than $2 billion in assets. Where do they get it? They sell oil. To who? To Turkey. Some have suggested, and some, by some I mean the Israeli government has suggested it, Russia has suggested it, the Iranian government has suggested it, that Turkish authorities, including Mr. Erdogan's family, are part of the people who buy ISIS oil. Selling ISIS oil is not like selling diamond where you can put it in a bag and if you can get it into Amsterdam, you can sell it. It's oil. You've got to put it in tankers. Why are the Syrians who control the air in Syria not destroying uh, the ability of ISIS to sell oil to Turkey or the Syrian government itself? Syria buys its own oil from ISIS at 50% discount. They are in selling slaves. They are unabashed about selling slaves. They are unabashed about selling antiquities. They're unabashed about uh, shaking down people. The way they go at control of these cities is remarkable, folks. It is not by accident. They took a city of 2 million people, Mosul, with about 1,100 soldiers, fighters, whatever you want to call them, terrorists, 
How do you take a city of 2 million with 1,100? The Iraqis were supposed to have 140,000 at least soldiers and security forces there. How do you take 140,000 soldiers and security forces with uh, 1,100? Well, one answer is half of the 140 were on paper. These were names that corrupt officials in Iraqi government were adding to collect money from sometimes you in terms of your taxpayers, sometimes the Iraqi government. It was a paper army. But even two million. You read how they go about it. They first send troops. They send their agents. They begin to study. They begin to study who has money. They begin to study who has a history. And once they have laid the foundation, they begin to attack from outside and from inside. And then it becomes a very effective machine. And what they are fighting, they claim, is a Middle East that was created by the West. Many of you have heard the name Sykes-Picot. Sykes-Picot is the agreement signed by a French and a British guy if you have seen uh, Lawrence of uh, Arabia, you would know uh, Mr. Sykes. He is uh, the character that always has a cane, is a very uh, devious character who fools everybody. That's a composite of Sykes. But Sykes-Pico is an actual agreement that essentially divides the Middle East uh, after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, after the end of World War I. Sykes-Pico is now falling apart. That's why we're in a historic moment. The borders that Sykes-Picot created make no sense from any reason that has anything to do with economy, with ethnicity, with language, with religion. The Kurds are divided in four different groups. One group in Syria, one group in Turkey, one group in Iraq, one group in Iran. Jordan was carved out because uh, the British had promised a kingdom to somebody and they ran out of kingdom. So they create, I mean, you laugh, but that's really the way uh, Jordan was created. Jordan doesn't make economic, strategic, political, ethnic sense. Uh, and, and the rest of it, these people are essentially challenging size people. And they're basically saying, we don't accept this. And the way they're going to go about doing it is... Again, if you read their own uh, literature, first and foremost is what, what they call management of savagery. A nice title before you go to lunch. Uh, it's a book by someone called Abu Bakr Naji. Again, West Point has translated into English. You can access it online. And you can see this is methodic madness. If you thought uh, mutually assured destruction of the detente era was madness, read this. He says, we are going to create a kind of a chaos out of which we will be the winner. The purpose of this chaos is essentially twofold. Frighten you and bring the kind of fear they say in your heart that they live with there. Two, the savagery in Europe, the savagery in this area recently, the savagery they commit in Iraq is intended to convince them 
that there is no gray zone. The notion of a gray zone is the idea that they have that Muslims cannot live peacefully in the Crusader land, in the West. The only place Muslims should live and can live is in their uh, false uh, caliphdom. So they want to make sure that Muslims don't believe that they can live in the Christian world. So how do you make that? They say, they literally say this. I'm not paraphrasing them. They say, we commit brutalities. They go after Muslims. We then tell the Muslims, then we tell you, you can't live here. So it is a remarkable, calculated, vicious circle. They create brutality. Europe responds. They use that response to mobilize more. And then the circle continues till the gray zone that they envision uh, has been eliminated. And they have all the patience in the world. They now have fighters from over 80 countries. They have fighters, the number of suicide bombers that they have put out in one month, if you take any of the last few months, if you average it out, the number of suicide bombers they have somehow created is more than most terrorist organizations in their entire life. So they're getting a remarkable supply. And how are they doing it? They're doing it by mobilizing in Europe, by mobilizing in the United States, by having a remarkable, sophisticated system of contacting uh, people who are disgruntled. If you read the New York Times, uh, there was a, or was it Washington Post? I don't remember. Somebody wrote a very detailed account of how they went after one single woman in the state of Washington. They worked on her for two years. They sent chocolates to her. They arranged friendships for this lonely woman. And then they said, go on this encrypted uh, site, and there in an encrypted site that the FBI can't get into, an encrypted site that is used by pornographers and drug dealers on the internet. There, they begin to tell them that we are part of ISIS. So they have a very sophisticated capacity to mobilize. They have a very sophisticated capacity for financial uh, survival. Part of that money, folks, has come from Saudi Arabia. Part of it has come from Qatar. Part of it has come from Kuwait. Because, to go back to those three anecdotes, the Sunnis and the Wahhabis began to think they need a dog in the fight against the Iranian radical Shiites. Iran created Hezbollah in Lebanon. And Hezbollah began to wreak havoc, not just in Lebanon, but Hezbollah's supporters began to wreak havoc in Iraq. There was the rise of radical Shiism in Iraq. Sunnis I said, how did they capture a city of two million with 1,000 1, people, 1,100? Part of it was that the Sunnis in Mosul were more frightened of Maliki, the government of Iraq at the time, than they were of ISIS. And why were they afraid of Maliki? Because Maliki was being fueled with a form of radical Islam from the Islamic Republic of Iran 
muscled by Islamic Republic of Iran commanders, by the Quds Brigade, and the idea that Shiism is the only form of true Islam. You can't expect Saudi Arabia or Qatar to sit back and allow this form of uh, uh, Shiite radicalism to emerge. So they began to help create ISIS. Part of ISIS came out of, if, again, if you look at the, the histories of uh, where they were uh, coming from, it, it came out of, initially, Afghanistan. One of, I wrote a, a book on uh, um, the Shah, another one that Hoover published on uh, the, great, the myth of the great Satan. The key to understanding the Islamic revolution in Iran is understanding the error that I think the West made and the Shah made in uh, appraising Islam. They thought that uh, the main enemy is communism and anyone who fights communism is a potential ally of the West. So Khomeini was virtually allowed to mobilize and organize freely while every other force in Iran was uh, destroyed. The United States helped trained some of the people who later became Al-Qaeda operatives, including the founder of Al-Qaeda, uh, the remarkable, brutal, sadistic guy who beheaded people. And the, he was so bad that by some accounts, other Al-Qaeda gave the hiding place to the United States, and the United States took him out with a bomb where he was hiding in some small village in an outlying uh, area. He is the spiritual father of uh, ISIS. So you now have two forces in the Middle East, ISIS and uh, Iranian radical Shiites, going at one another in this rather remarkable uh, battle. When Saudi Arabia was funded by oil, and when Iran uh, won the revolution, in, the clerics won the revolution in 1979, uh, you had the ability for this radical form to be exported. To be exported where? You now have more Muslims living in Europe than you've had ever in the 1,300-year history of Christianity and Islam. For 1,300 years, you have always had more Jews and Christians living in the Muslim world than you've had Muslims living in West. There are reasons for this. There are theolog theological reasons. Now you have 40 million and counting. And you have 40 million and counting coming to a Europe that faces its own serious problems. Just at the moment where Europe, the idea of Europe, the idea of a common Europe, the idea of a no-border Europe is being challenged by the sudden infusion of millions of people. And the more Europe retrenches, the more you have people like Hungarian Prime Minister talks about the threat, the more ISIS uses that threat to say, didn't we tell you so? Didn't we tell you the idea that you can find uh, refuge there uh, false? Let me uh, end by telling you what Dabek means and uh, thus underscoring why it is difficult to solve this problem. Dabek is the name of a village in Syria. It is not far from the village in that vicinity 
where in the Old Testament it is estimated that the apocalypse will come in. In Dabek, in Islam, uh, Mr. Abu Bakr Baghdadi, the new caliph, self-declared caliph of the Islamic State, uh, and I really find this argument whether it's Islamic slave, ISIS or ISIL, uh, rather silly. This is a serious threat. Whatever name you want to call it, call it Daesh. Uh, Kerry has now begun to call it Daesh, which is the Arabic name for it, and they're very insulted by it. They think the, the threat will go away if you call them a bad name. The threat is not going to go away. The threat needs to be solved in a very serious strategic way that is going to require the best wisdom of not just the United States, not just Europe, but also primarily the Islamic world. This is a problem that the Islamic world has to come to back to solve. It's not going to get solved otherwise. Uh, and it's going to take a lot of rethinking and a reshuffling. And uh, uh, this crisis that I'm telling you about, these people who have come there, uh, are adding fuel. So David is the name of a village. And uh, there is a hadith. I told you what a hadith is. There is a hadith that claims that Prophet Muhammad said 1,300 years ago that if you can get Western forces to come and fight Islamic forces at the village of David, the end of the world will come and Islam will win the world over. So, in a sense, if you go fight them in Syria, you're in a self-fulfilling prophecy. You might have to go to Dabeg and fight them, or as one uh, friend recently says, let's just go to Dabeg and beat the hell out of them. And so they know that we came, we beat, and uh, the end of the world didn't come. Uh, but uh, the problem is that they are trying to get to that kind of a confrontation. And because they now have this kind of territory, and because they now have this stretch, and if you look at all the places that ISIS is, or look at all the places that the Islamic Republic of Iran, through Quds uh, Brigade, or through the IRGC, or through Hezbollah, have created beachfronts, have created uh, places that they can have a proxy war in. Uh, you're looking at a very dangerous uh, Middle East. You're looking at a dangerous Middle East that uh, is looking at oil falling to $30. Uh, look at Saudi Arabia, look at Iran, look at Qatar, look at the politics of oil. You're looking at societies that have historically been profoundly despotic but are now beginning to get access to the Internet, what the Internet would do to these societies, what the youth bulge will do to these societies, what the rise of women will do to these societies. To different degrees, these societies are now for the first time being challenged, their misogyny is being challenged by an increasingly assertive woman. In Iran, you find this remarkable uh, happening. You find elements of it in other places. Even in Saudi Arabia, you're beginning to see uh, aspects of this. So, uh, to me, the challenge that we face, and I, I can give you more statistics that de will depress you, uh, but I, I think... Uh, 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 they, they will never forgive me for uh, spoiling your lunch even more than I have already. Uh, so maybe I should stop on this.
more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.